Well, thank you uh, so much for letting me be part of your service today. Uh, it's always a joy to get the invite to come to Grace, uh, and especially to, to join with you in person and virtually as well. Uh, it's a little different than, than we're used to, but uh, I think it's been about a year since I've been uh, here at Grace, and so I don't need to say how crazy the last five or six months have been, how different our world looks from last summer. Regardless, I love this community, I love this church, I love Grace, and so I, I, I love having the opportunity to be with you, uh, especially in the midst, I think, of such uncertain and strange times. And as I think about these times, as I think about what it means to be faithful during a global pandemic, during social and racial unrest and division, as I think about what it means to be faithful, what we're called to be faithful to, uh, we're in the middle of all this right now, right? We're, we're just months away from another presidential election. So not even pandemic, not even social unrest. What are we looking ahead to? Uh, and I know Mark would love for me to share some political opinions with you right now, but I will save that for uh, next time I come, if, if there's a next time. Uh, as I've experienced all of this, and as I look ahead to the election, as I just think about everything going on in my own life, uh, as I think about what it's been like raising kids during COVID, uh, my wife and I actually had a baby uh, 13 days before New York City shut down. As I think about all of this, I think about what does it mean to be faithful? And what am I putting my faith into? What are we putting our faith into? What is that? What, what are we being faithful to? And so it's with that question, with that idea in mind that we enter into our scripture this morning. I'm going to be reading uh, Revelation 22. This is the last chapter of the Bible. This is the ESV translation of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon Take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter 
the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of God. So, we are in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, this is the final written word that God left his people and the church. And God's people and God's church continue to wait in anticipation and in preparation for all that we see in this passage, in this book in anticipation and preparation for the second advent, for the return of Jesus Christ. Here we sit, 20 centuries after Christ walked this earth, and we wait for these promises that we see, these promises of this God, of this Jesus Christ, who entered our world as a baby. You see, we celebrate the first advent, the first coming of Christ, every year during Christmas. But today, as we sit in this pandemic, as we sit with so much uncertainty and unrest, around us and in our future, I hope that we can hear and respond to the promises of the second coming that we see here in Revelation 22. Now this book, this book of Revelation, it's often classified as uh, prophetic and apocalyptic. If you read the book, if you read the whole book, you'll see that it lives up to its name, that it is in fact a revelation given to the disciple and the gospel writer, John. And this revelation comes to us from Jesus Christ. This book tells its readers about a spiritual war, the war that God's people and God's church are engaged in. Uh, As one commentator puts it, it, he says, it paints a picture of the cosmic conflict between God and his church on one hand and Satan and his evil allies on the other. As we learn in this conflict, Jesus Christ has already won the victory through his sacrificial death, through his death on the cross. And yet, even though the victory has been handed to God's people, we, the church, we continue to struggle with sin. We continue to be assaulted by Satan, by persecution, by false teaching, by the allure of material wealth or of approval or political power or of cultural acceptance. Uh, in our times right now, we continue to crave health. And beyond health, we continue to crave our freedoms being restored, a return to, the, to life as we once knew it. We know this. We know this personally. We know this collectively. Our world is not perfect yet, even though Christ has already achieved victory on the cross. And so here we get a revealing picture of this spiritual reality and of the realities that God's people face in between the first and the second advents of Jesus Christ. In between, uh, the, we are in between that now. We're living in this in-between right now. We also get affirmation after affirmation 
uh, of the power of Jesus Christ and, the, and of the power of his victorious sacrificial death, all in the book of Revelation. And that's all the promises, that's all the prophetic nature of the book. But I also mentioned that it is an apocalyptic literature. And I think sometimes when you hear that word, when we think of the apocalypse, uh, it, it seems like it might be something that's far off, or more likely, something that uh, is just really in our own imaginations, though uh, we do probably think about it a bit more given our situation. But seriously, who really takes this idea of the end times, the end of the world, the apocalypse of all mankind? Who thinks about that daily? The reality is I do think we experience it in a lot of different ways in our own lives. We all hear about it a lot. It may not be as in your face as a piece of historical divine writing uh, like the book of Revelation, but we can't deny that this is a common theme in our world and in our society, and it has long been. Uh, Nearly 60 years ago, uh, Bob Dylan wrote what would be one of his most famous songs, The Times They Are A-Changin', where he's saying there's a battle outside and it's raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls for the times they are a-changin'. Now these words could have been written by the disciple John in the first century, just as much as they were written by Dylan in Greenwich Village in the 60s, and I think any one of us could have written these words to describe our times right now. How many of you feel like there's a battle outside raging? How many of you feel like that the times that we once knew have gone away and are completely different today? Whenever we read books or stories about apocalypse, about significant changes, about eye-opening realities, or when we read the book of Revelation, or when we listen to Bob Dylan, uh, these things are often centered on battles, on divisiveness, on wars, people fighting, on unity being shattered, on a loss of hope. And if you think about all of those things, it doesn't sound just like a song or a book or a story, right? Our world right now, our country, the metro New York area, we are in need of some type of hope, some type of restoration, some type of promised goodness to rise up. We are in need for this as we continue to contemplate and consider what it means to be faithful during all of this. But whether we're in a global crisis or not, you can think of your own life, you can think of your own relationships, your own work. Where have you experienced that kind of hurt or pain or division or brokenness or hopelessness? Where in your life have you needed or expected or cried out for some type of hope to return? And so with all of that in mind, with the context of uh, the book in mind, with our own context in mind, we read Revelation 22. And I know this chapter is a lot. And my hope isn't that we all become master theologians of the book of Revelation today, but that we can find hope throughout God's word. And we can find it right here at the end of the Bible. Regardless of what you believe, I think this search for hope is something that we are all on in some way. Our passage today, John picks up where he leaves off in chapter 21, where he has a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. He describes how the earth as we know it passes away and how the holy city, the the new Jerusalem, descends out of the skies and settles on the earth. Perhaps most powerfully, uh, as he describes it, uh, it comes from the opening of chapter 21. He says, I heard a loud voice saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Hope. John is presenting literally an earth-changing kind of hope that we can sink our faith into. Hope that we can expect with Christ's second coming, with his return to this world. And in our passage today, John continues to describe this. He describes what he sees in this new heaven and new earth. We see a river flowing through the holy city. We see fruit-bearing trees. We see healing for all of God's nations. Uh, That verse, verse 2, it's a direct reference to the great prophet Ezekiel, where he describes almost the exact same setting in Ezekiel 47. Revelation's prophetic. What we're seeing in these opening five verses of chapter 22 is hope. And this hope is rooted in some type of cosmic, otherworldly restoration. We're seeing the restoration of the Garden of Eden, the restoration of God's original creation that we read about at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God planted a garden called Eden, and there were all kinds of trees growing there. And in the middle was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there was a river that ran through that watered Eden. So when we read these verses in context with the rest of the biblical story, we can see here in Revelation 22 that this is actually God's very own creation, Eden, that is being restored. A new heaven and a new earth, a holy city with a river running through it, a tree, the tree of life. See, everything we read, the entire Bible, it ends with a new heaven and a new earth. It ends with Eden being restored. It ends with the healing of nations. It ends with God giving his people a light that is so powerful that John describes it as being not just more powerful than lamps, but more powerful than even the sun. For me, when I read this passage, what is uh, always so astonishing to me uh, is what we actually read in verse 4. We can't skip over this. Verse 4, God's people will see his face. There will be healing of the nations. God will give us his light. But God's people will also see his face. In the book of Exodus, we're told that Moses couldn't actually look at God's face because if he actually saw the face of God, he would die. And we see in the passage that Hannah read to us earlier just how powerful even being in the presence of God was for Moses. That Moses, after coming away from speaking with God, was terrifyingly radiant. His face shone so strongly that people were scared of him. And here, in this prophecy that we see at the end of the Bible, when Christ returns, when when God's creation is restored, we will see the face of God and we will live. I, I know that I have no real proper way of communicating just how powerful this is, what it means for us, because I have to ask myself, do I, can I even understand this? Can I even imagine this kind of light, this kind of radiance, this kind of change in my own life, in my own world? And I ask that question because for me, when I start thinking about this, when I start thinking about this power of restoration, the power of Christ's second coming, my mind drifts to the brokenness that I've experienced in my life, the divisions that I've seen, the, uh, the brokenness that maybe I've caused or been part of. You see, it's always centered on me and on my surroundings. And I think, okay, when Christ comes back, he's going to fix these things. The wrongs in my life will be righted. The brokenness in my world will be mended. The broken relationships in my life will be restored. And while I do think that 
on some level, all of these kinds of restoration are true and should be expected. What I realize each and every time I come to this chapter, I realize just how small my imagination is. Because we're not just talking about the redemption of your job or of your office. We're not even just talking about the redemption of your marriage or your friendships or of culture or of society or of New York City or Long Island. We are talking about the redemption, the restoration of the Garden of Eden. The redemption, the restoration of God's original perfect creation. The redemption, the restoration of all of creation. And with this restoration comes the reality that the God who, would, who once would not allow himself to be seen, this God will not only reveal his face to us, he will not only reveal his light to us, but he will give that to us. This is hope. This is hope that we can place our faith into, even in the midst of a global pandemic, because our hope is not in what we have at this very moment, but our hope is in this promise that we read in Revelation. Here in the promise of Christ's second coming, here we find restoration and redemption. Because what happens when Christ returns? He doesn't give power to us, right? He doesn't lavish us with gold and silver. He doesn't promise us that now we'll get our personal vengeance on all of those who have wronged us. He doesn't bring us closer to those earthly powers that we've craved all of our lives. He gives us light. He shows us his face. He, the God of all creation, he dwells with us. He brings his heaven to our world. He heals the nations. That's the promise. That's the hope that Christ gives to you and me today, no matter what is raging outside of our doors. And we could end there. We could end the sermon there, and things might seem nice and neat and hopeful. Uh, Still maybe a little confusing because it is the book of Revelation after all. Uh, But man, this is a beautiful picture of hope, isn't it? But we can't end there because I chose the entire chapter of Revelation 22. And we've only gotten through the first five verses. And so uh, what's so interesting to me is that though that we've spent so much time focusing on this hope, the Bible doesn't actually come to an end with this picture of hope and restoration and redemption. But it actually comes to an end with a warning. You see, the Bible opens with perfect creation, with God creating the world and the animals and mankind, and the center of this perfection is Eden. But it also opens with a warning. Back in Genesis 2 again, after God creates Adam and places him in Eden and commands him to work the garden and care for the garden, he also tells Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. A warning. Even in the midst of perfection, a warning. Even before sin ever entered this world, before the serpent ever opened its mouth, a warning. And here in Revelation 22, we once again see perfect creation as Eden is restored and redeemed, and yet we also see a warning. The Bible opens with perfect creation, Eden, and a warning. And it ends with perfect creation, Eden restored, and a warning. And this warning, as we see in verses 12 through 16, comes to us directly from God, from Jesus Christ himself. He will repay each person according to what they have done. And he will reward each person according to what they have done. We see this in in verse 12. It sounds similar to what Jesus says in Matthew in chapter 25 when he says, whatever you did or did not do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did or did not do for me. You see, that's a warning for us today. 
the way we live today, the way we treat our neighbors, our friends, those who we disagree with, our lives today will be accounted for upon Christ's return. And then after that, what? We hear about the outsiders in verse 15, the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now what's so paradigm shifting here is that for basically the entirety of the Bible, God's people, even God himself when he comes to earth as Jesus Christ, were considered outsiders. Jesus Christ was born an outsider. He and his family had to flee his homeland. He spent his life ministering to the outsiders, to the people society looked down upon, to the people that society forgot about or outcast. He broke bread with those people. He stayed at their homes. And when he was wrongfully accused, he carried his cross outside of the city and died as an outsider. Jesus lived and ministered outside the proverbial and often literal gates. And he calls his people, you and me, to do the same. And if you want to read about this, you can get a powerful picture of it in Hebrews chapter 13 about what it means for Christ to be an outsider and what it means for us to join him as outsiders. And yet, and this is what is so amazing, when Eden is restored, when Christ comes again, when our world is made perfect, when the nations are healed, we're told that we are invited inside the city, that we are welcomed into the city. Those people who once lived on the inside, who once craved power, who once craved money, gratification, comfort, security, those people are now on the outside. And those people who are listed, the outsiders, they're the ones who live their lives today, who want the kingdom, who want power. They want all of this right now at whatever cost. And I say they, I say they, but how many of us can find ourselves in the description of the outsiders? Idolatry, lying, sexual immorality. But friends, and this is the crux of the warning we see in these verses, the warning that Christ will give to each person according to what they've done. The foundation of this warning, and honestly the foundation of of revelation and of the entire gospel story, is that God's people, we are not called to try and get the kingdom today, here and now. We are not trying to replace the coming promises of Christ with whatever we can find today. We are called to, to suffer and wait for the coming kingdom. Sexual immorality, idolatry, lying, the list can go on and on. All of those things, that's you or that's me, trying to bring the kingdom on our own terms, on our own time, trying to get it here and now. But who does Christ say will receive the right to the tree of life? Who does he say will actually be invited to enter into the gates of the city? beginning of verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now, you are probably thinking, hmm, that's a weird one. We've heard in the Gospels Jesus say, what, blessed are the poor? Blessed are the meek? Blessed are those who mourn? Blessed are the peacemakers? But we've never heard him quite say, blessed are those who wash their robes. And yet, it is this group of people that Christ illustrates as those who gain the right to the tree of life and the right to enter into this new heavenly city. You see, this is imagery of mankind and of mankind's sin. At the very opening of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. We read, to him, to Jesus Christ, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, in that phrase, the original Greek word used for freed 
uh, is pronounced nearly the exact same way as the original word for washed in verse 14 in our passage today. And in fact, many translations uh, translate that word in chapter 1 as washed. And so it would not read to him who loves us and has freed us, but to him who loves us and has washed us in his own blood. You see, this phrase in verse 14 is not meant to be taken as some literal blessing that you receive when you do your laundry. It is meant to be taken as a reminder that our robes, our sins, our lives, our robes are washed only by Jesus Christ. And perhaps more to the point, they are only washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this word washed, it is an active word. It is not past tense. And so it is active in our lives today. Though Christ's death on the cross covers us, covers you and me, there is still this ongoing defeat of sin in our lives. If you've heard the term sanctification, Grayson mentioned it in his prayers of the people this morning. That's what we're talking about, this ongoing renewing of our lives, getting us closer and closer to this restoration that we see in Revelation 22. And friends, there is nothing that we can do to speed this washing up, to conclude this washing. We repent of our sins. That's why Mark led us in a corporate prayer of confession and invited us into a personal, private time of confession. We pray to God and ask him to direct and guide us so that we might live and walk in his ways. And we patiently and faithfully wait for the return of our Lord and Savior. And then even after that, we're warned again in verses 18 and 19 that we should not add to or take away from the book of Revelation. And many would argue John is saying, don't add or take away from the entire gospel story. John's following in the footsteps of Moses, who commanded very similar things in the book of Deuteronomy when he tells God's people, don't add or subtract to what I've taught you. And it's important for the book of Revelation, for this passage, the important thing is that John reminds us that this is not coming from him, but that this is coming from Jesus Christ. Verse 20, he, he who testifies to these things, that's Jesus. And what does he say? He says, yes, I am coming soon. And what do God's people respond with? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, though this wraps up with a warning, the warning is not the final word. The final word is a promise from Jesus Christ that he is coming soon. And it's followed by a a response by God's people, by the church. Come, Lord Jesus. This was the same prayer that uh, the church in the first century frequently offered. And it's even the same prayer that Paul concludes 1 Corinthians with. In the original spoken language, Aramaic, it's pronounced Maranatha. Come, Lord. In the face of division, in in the face of hurt, in the face of brokenness, pain, suffering, death, sorrow, desperation... In the face of spiritual warfare and apocalypse, God's people today, just like in the first century, you and me, we cling to this promise that Christ is coming. And we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. We don't cry out for a thing or an experience. We cry out for Jesus Christ, for God himself to return to our world. You see, our future is not rooted in a time or a place. It is rooted in in the person and the promises of Jesus Christ, a person, our God, who is bigger than our galaxy, just as we sang at the opening of service, who transcends time and place as he declares he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last that we see in verse 13. So my friends, how do we hope when we face apocalyptic experiences? How do we hope when we face COVID-19 
How do we hope when we face our own personal trials, our own personal sorrows, the brokenness of our world? We remind ourselves of Christ's promise. He is coming soon. And we remind ourselves that it is because of this Christ, because of his blood, because of the continued washing of our sins, that we are even able to hope in the first place. We can hope today because of what John wrote 2,000 years ago and because of what Christ promises to do in our future one day. We hope as we wait. We hope as we prepare for his return. We hope as we anticipate this restoration and redemption, these earth-changing things that are promised to us by the creator of the universe, promised to us by Jesus Christ, promised to us by our God who we can trust because he will restore all things and because he promises he will return. Hear that. Though this may not seem like a practical application, hear that Jesus Christ has promised to return. And so may we all rejoice in that truth as we say together, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for this time. We thank you for uh, the ability to worship together, Lord, in your house. And we thank you for the technology that allows us to connect to brothers and sisters all over, God, that we can commune together, even if we feel scattered, Lord, that we can gather together as your church. And God, we thank you that no matter where we might be, no matter how we might worship, Lord, that you are with us. Father, may your presence in our lives remind us of these promised truths, that you will return one day, God, that you will return to restore our lives, to redeem our world, and to bring us into this new heavenly city. Father, we pray that we would live lives that reflect these promises. Enable us to do that. Equip us to do that, God. And help us do that as a community, Father. We pray all of these things in the name of your heavenly Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.